Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Climate change is the ultimate example of a problem that can only meaningfully be addressed at the global level. Dramatic action in a few countries may be interesting, maybe even important, depending on the countries, but actually reducing the concentration of greenhouse gases in, in the atmosphere requires many countries moving in the same direction and moving fast. Last November, most countries sent delegations, some including presidents and prime ministers, to Glasgow for the 26th United Nations high-level meeting on climate. Many saw it as an inflection point, perhaps the last real opportunity not only to deepen national commitments, but to force the kind of transformational changes in how energy is produced and consumed around the world that are necessary to hold the rise in global warming to one and a half degrees or less. What happened? Was Glasgow a success? Did enough countries make enough commitments? More importantly, since commitments are easy or relatively easy, is there any evidence that countries are now likely to deliver? No one is better positioned to answer those questions than Ambassador Tomas Anker Christensen, Denmark's climate ambassador. Tomas was deeply engaged in the European and global run-up to Glasgow, in the negotiations in Scotland, and in the efforts since then to translate, translate and in the efforts since then to translate words into action. Full disclosure, Tomas served as a juror in last year's Telberg SNF Eliasson Global Leadership Prize. He is a friend of Telberg and he's a friend of mine. Welcome, Tomas. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me. Let's start where Glasgow ended. What were the most important successes and failures of COP26? 60,000 foot overview. Well, I, I think the most important failure to start with that um, is that we are too far from uh, in the real world, in the real world of action and commitments uh, that you mentioned. Um, we are too far from uh, uh, the curve that leads us to a 1.5 degree world. Um, we went into uh, Glasgow with uh, being at a 2.7 degrees mark as presented by, by the UN and uh, leaving it, depending on which analysis you look at, we are somewhere in the 1.8 to 2.4 degree range. If everyone delivers on everything they promised, uh, signed, um, uh, uh, committed to. Um, and that's a big if. So, uh, so we are still quite some way from being on track for the 1.5 degree uh, mark. And, and, um, you know, it takes a hell of an effort by everyone to get mobilized to the extent where uh, we were in Glasgow, where everybody was trying to be on their best behavior and actually make progress. Um, and, and that's maybe part of the, the success of Glasgow. Um, that uh, when when the UK took over the presidency uh, in in um, around this time two years ago, um, we were heading somewhere close to four degrees, and uh, 
And, and so even being at a 2.7 degree uh, mark uh, when we went into Glasgow is a considerable achievement. Um, and and uh, mobilizing further commitments and announcements uh, in Glasgow is also really, really great. And uh, when Alok Sharma, the UK COP president, at the end of, um, of the COP declared success in, in um, keeping 1.5 degrees within reach, uh, you could argue, I would argue that that is a fair assessment that the UK, we all collectively actually managed to do so. Now, why do I say that? That, that comes down to the negotiations and the, and the outcomes that were actually uh, negotiated in addition to the commitments in, in Glasgow. Uh, success uh, really depends on how one assesses our global uh, collective will to act. Uh, Doug Hammarskjöld, the second UN Secretary General, famously said that the UN was not created uh, to deliver mankind to heaven, but to save it from hell. And uh, did the outcome of Glasgow manage to save us from hell uh, for another day? I think it did, Alan. Um, in, in the outcome, there's not only a, a, a strengthened commitment to 1.5 degrees. Uh, in Paris, we actually set two. Uh, there is a recognition that we're far off track, uh, that we need to reduce to 45% by 2030, which is for the first time ever a collective recognition of the of the size of the um, challenge. And there's, an, uh, there's a strong uh, uh, urge for everyone to uh, either submit new plans or revisit the current plans to see if they are on track, both for 2030, but also for long-term net zero strategies for 2050. Even the concept of net zero strategies didn't exist at the UN before, and that's new as well. And um, and the reason why it's 2.7 uh, UN calculation and maybe 1.8 at the end of the day uh, after Glasgow is also because there are many countries that have not submitted their their plans, their um, their NDCs, uh, national determined contributions to the UN, uh, including countries like like India, like Russia. Um, uh, there are many of the large emitters in the G20 who have not uh, done their formal paperwork yet. And, and the pressure is now on everyone to come back in charm in, in November of this year in, in Egypt and, um, and do what they have committed to in, in, in the agreement. And in the agreement, there is an annual ministerial conversation. There's an annual synthesis report. And there's a whole sort of structure now for annually reviewing and revisiting the whole regime. We didn't have that in Paris. So, there's no hiding in the global eye anymore. There's a constant vigilance that uh, governments will hold each other to, uh, honest to this agreement, but also I know civil society, uh, people like the ones who are listening to this uh, podcast and uh, media, everyone will focus on how well we're doing and keeping on track. Well, let me push on that because I would argue there has not been a lot of evidence that that pressure is successful. It is successful in eliciting uh, promises. As you've just said, for the first time, um, we have commitments net zero from many companies, from many countries. Uh, All sorts of words are now floating around in, in the atmosphere, 
But the gap between those words and actions, if anything, seems to be wider than it was. Uh, we're in the middle of an energy crisis at the moment. Prices are very high. People are racing around looking for more coal, more oil. Uh, I, I, I would hesitate to do it, but I actually quoted Sarah Palin the other day, burn, baby, burn seems to be the motto of the moment and could be further away from the spirit of Glasgow. So the obvious question is, what is it that you felt at Glasgow that says countries, not just their climate ambassadors, but actual people making political decisions are willing to, to this time to walk the walk? Alan, that there was no one and heads of government who were there in the first three days and uh, all their ministers. And these are not only climate envoys, but also energy ministers and, and uh, everyone else. So there was no one who was questioning the urgency of the situation, the need to act and the need to accelerate action, including energy transition. There are many reasons for the current energy crises, but to uh, claim that it's related to the rollout of renewable energy is pretty ludicrous. And, and I mean, the fact that there are some powers who are limiting their uh, gas exports uh, and are, are whipping up a crisis doesn't mean that the energy transition is not, is not picking up and picking up speed. Uh, this is a short term, a short term blip that's also caused by uh, extra demand for energy coming out of the COVID crisis and very rapid global growth. Um, and well, but let me push on that. But, but Tomas, let me push back there because I think there is considerable evidence that there has been, and it's been engineered deliberately, a shortfall in investment in new hydrocarbon resources. Absolutely. Um, the gap, depending on how you measure it, is is large and getting larger between what is needed to sustain in, in the next five years, 10 years, hydrocarbon, oil and gas, even coal production, and what companies and countries are actually doing. So it is more than just the recovery from the pandemic, and it is more than just the pace at which renewables are rolling out. We are systematically pressing down the production of hydrocarbons, and it can't be, a, it shouldn't have been a surprise that the result is higher energy prices and, 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 and that gap that in the short run could be incredibly politically dangerous because politicians uh, could be more willing to react to voters who are angry about high electricity prices in Europe uh, or elsewhere and forget their long run, the long run needs to make this transformation. But Alan, the, the, the solution to that crisis is, is not to say that the rollout of renewables is, is failing. It is to double the efforts to increase the pace of uh, the energy transition. That's what we're doing in Denmark. And I think that's what's going to happen in Europe as a consequence of the crisis. And um, traveling in the Middle East, uh, uh, I think uh, listening to what's happening in, in North Africa and the Gulf, uh, they are also not only focusing on their uh, hydrocarbon exports, but also looking at investing more and at higher speed into renewables to create uh, to create new markets and new um, export commodities. Uh, there's a lot of talk about green hydrogen and 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 the way the hydrogen revolution will help decarbonize the uh, industry and and the hard to abate sectors and transport, by the way. Um, 
but also uh, uh, of of energy and energy interconnectors. We are we are in in my part of Europe, Northern Europe, looking at a very uh, rapid scale up of, um, of offshore wind in the North Sea, um, just as you are on the U.S. East Coast, and um, and similarly in other parts of Europe and, and North Africa, they're looking at rapid uh, build out of solar, um, and and I think. That's a question of time before that kicks in and, and starts uh, uh, replacing um, the the energy that, as you rightly say, where where investments are no longer are no longer coming. And clearly, there is a transition period. It is not it is not a a, a straight line from from one energy system to the other. It's bumpy. It's messy. It's uh, it goes up and down. Prices will be volatile. Um, but that's also due to the fact that we have no, there's no global government, there's no global planning agency. There's a, it's very much building on the forces of the market, right? And, um, and there's some adjustments in the market that simply haven't taken place yet. Let me follow that with first a top down and then a bottom up question. The top down question you just alluded to collaborative global action requires, well, collaboration. It's the nature. Um, how possible is that at a time of growing geopolitical tension? I would say that actually there was much less tension in Glasgow than I've seen previously. And again, the the collective agreement on the challenge, on the on the, the severity of the situation that we're facing as a as a global community, was much stronger than I've seen before. No one was questioning that. No one was questioning the science. No one was questioning the need. The need to act and to act at speed. I, I think what most governments are grappling with now is more the how. You know, how how do you how do you manage the energy transition when most of your engineers know how to operate a, a coal power station or to drill for oil and gas, but very few know how to operate a wind farm or a solar farm or, or build the intermittency and the energy system based where you use renewable energy as a base load instead of uh, nuclear or, or coal or, or gas. I mean, these are these are hard engineering questions that many countries uh, don't have the expertise in yet, and, and to build that uh, at speed and scale is necessary. I, I would also say that in the financial sector, there are many financial operators who simply don't uh, understand this fully yet and haven't haven't grasped onto it. The the multilateral development banks uh, need a, a makeover. I, I listened to a conversation yesterday where Mark Carney the the special envoy for finance of the UN Secretary General, former central bank governor of the UK, was arguing that that we need to totally reform the MDBs to uh, to use their balance sheets to you know help speed up the transition. There there are there are many pieces of the international architecture that still haven't come around to facilitating and and, and doing this. Um, Carney, you know, he he gathered 130 trillion dollars in his net zero. Uh, finance alliance, uh, but but that money has to come out and work, and that takes a lot of hard work, country by country, sector by sector. Um, and I sensed in Glasgow a lot of willingness, even amongst the largest economies, uh, also the carbohydrate producers in the global south, to do this. But we still don't have uh, enough experts, enough infrastructure, enough knowledge of how to do it. That's the big bottleneck right now. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted 
at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. The bottom-up question maybe points to another bottleneck in a sense. Um, It's one thing for, at the global or national level, for leaders to make commitments to net zero, uh, to talk about speeding them up as the EU has consistently tried to move its its, um, objectives nearer in time. It's quite another to execute in democratic societies. Uh, You need people, voters, to accept that these kinds of fundamental changes in how they live um, are necessary. Is there enough work being done? And this is this is an impossible question to answer, but at that grassroots level, at the level of getting actual people, not not leaders, people uh, to do what needs to get done, to accept the changes that they are going to have to live fundamentally differently. Uh, or is, is there a is this is there a gap? Is part of the gap between promise and action the fact that we're a little short on, on, on the persuade on the democratic leadership side? But Alan, I, I think I would frame this differently though. I would say that most people are very happy to uh, to be part of this transition on the premise that they can continue living as they have done until now. Um, I mean, 15 oh, fair enough, but, but that premise is 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 a false premise. It's not. It's not. Uh, so when you increase electricity prices in Spain uh, by 100 percent in 12 15 months. 15 years ago, all of us had fixed phones. How many people have a fixed phone in their home today? I don't. I haven't had one for 12 years. That was a voluntary choice, and you got better performance out of it. This is a... 15 years ago, everybody had cable. Now you're streaming all your news. You're watching your shows on Netflix. That That's a European phenomenon, and that is a very specific phenomenon in Europe. It's not true in the global south. It's not true in China. It's not true in America. So you're, is it the case that if you increase electricity prices by 100, 200, 300 percent, which means you're going to spend on electricity and not on other things. If you quadruple or more the price of transportation, this transition, I was trained as an economist. And the worst problem with how economists think is that they assume transitions away. Oh, yes, here's where we're going. Here's where we are. Don't worry what happens in between. Isn't that the greatest risk that people just say no? My point is that renewable energy per kilowatt hour installed is much cheaper than fossil generated energy. So uh, if people can drive an electric car instead of a combustion engine car, and it's better for the environment, and they can get the car at the same price, and the energy that they put into it is cheaper than the gas, they'll do it. It's the transition I'm asking about. Right. Because you don't get to that transition unless people are willing to pay the cost of the transition. But for the consumer, the choice, if you if the uh, if the energy electricity you get out of your socket, I mean, do you ever think about whether it comes from nuclear or from a coal power station or gas station or from a wind farm? Most people. I actually do because I'm given the option of different packages of energy that I can purchase. But for most people, it's the fact that they have electricity that matters, not the source of it. For most people, it's the fact of and the price of. Price matters. 
Right. And this is systematically got to. It's, it's, it's how economics work. We're trying to raise prices to discourage consumption. That's that's supply and demand. Uh, but voters have a bad habit of saying, excuse me, inflation is going up. I'm unhappy. I'm going to vote these guys out in hoping that something else happens. I'm not saying it's irrational long term. How, how, how do we we're telling people what they have to do? I don't know that we've brought them along. It is different in some European countries, for sure where there's a much more robust and open conversation about the energy transformation. Um, I, I worry that this, I, I worry that leaders are, are committing things that their followers don't quite understand. But that's based on the premise that you can continue business as usual at no cost and at no, at no uh, political cost either. And, and that's not viable either. The, If we do nothing about climate change, the cost of our current life form will become much higher and the insecurity will become much higher. So, so status quo is not, is not an option either. And, uh, and I think people are realizing that both in Europe and in North America with the severe storms, the heat waves, the cold waves, the, you know, the floods, uh, that, that standing still is not, is not viable either. And, You're right that in a transition there is volatility and, and prices go up and down, but eventually the renewable energy alternatives to the current energy systems are cheaper and as operative and stable. Um, and in that sense, I, I think that the biggest the biggest challenge to people's life form and lifestyle is actually more in the in the in, in the food side of things, you know. Uh, beef and and uh, grass-fed animals uh, on food that comes on four legs um, is much more energy intensive and and uh, emission high than other food sources and and uh, in terms of people's diet uh, that's probably where the biggest challenge is. Well, let's talk about that because one of the the new commitments in Glasgow was in fact the commitment by more than 100 countries to cut emissions from methane by 30% by the end of the decade. Right. And that doesn't mean anything to anybody until you explain that one of the largest sources of, of methane is, in fact, agriculture. Yes. And is, in fact, uh, those four-legged uh, animals that, that McDonald's makes available in, in, in patty form. Uh, the problem, of course, is that agriculture in Europe, in the United States, in most countries, is incredibly political. Um, we all have, certainly in the industrial world, stupid agricultural policies based on at least rational economics, uh, but they're based on very rational politics. So to your point, uh, that is one of those commitments that is is mission critical. It, it is. And, and, and um The, the Global Energy Transition Commission, which does some of the best analysis of the energy space, uh, they, in their report coming into Glasgow, were saying that the, the um, cutting down of methane by 40% in 2030 is the uh, you know, most effective way of, of ensuring that we're on a 1.5 degree track. So the 30% reduction commitment that more than 100 nations did is not even enough in terms of what the expert says we we should be doing and and the main sources of methane currently are well animals oil and gas production and and um, waste 
but there is a fourth source that, that hasn't really been released yet, but that's all the methane that's trapped in the permafrost and under the, under the ice in the high north, in the Arctic. And as, uh, as the Arctic is melting, we will see burps of methane being released from uh, Siberia, from the uh, ocean floor in the Arctic. And, and, uh, and, and the experts fear that that's, that methane coming from there might actually be what, what drives the climate change even faster than we we're currently seeing. Um, in, in terms of our cows and what comes out of both ends of them, um, you know, to my knowledge, uh, not uh, sufficient research has been invested into that challenge. Uh, we've been looking so much at energy system transformation, in- increasingly at transport and industry transformation. We've been focusing on on tree planting in, in terms of, of sequestering um, carbon, but um, but uh, farm animals and their emissions uh, has not been a focus of major uh, global initiatives yet. Uh, there are many people who now with that pledge from Glasgow are looking at this, and I think human ingenuity and and uh, researchers and and you know getting everybody focused on it might actually help deliver um, results and. And, and, and so I, I know that in Europe, at least, we're more focused on energy system transformation in the short run and then, and then looking at agriculture coming after that. I have seen people arguing, uh, especially my friends from uh, hydrocarbon producing countries in, <laughs> in the Gulf, uh, saying, well, I mean, we could start looking at your animals first and then look at our sources of uh, emissions uh, afterwards. And I, I'm sure that, I mean, that's a conversation we haven't really had yet. What are the trade-offs and where, where do you get more bang for the buck first? And what do we need to move on first in order to be on track? And that's also where this, we come back to your, to the question of the collective global will. How do we, how do we construct inside the negotiations and outside those alliances between North and South, large and small, that makes everybody feel part of moving along and, and, I mean, a lot of what we've talked about now, Alan, is, is more economics than the way the way sort of the public and private work together on, on making systems change. And you could say, why do you even need a, a global global circus every year where, where negotiators sit down and, and uh, agree on words? I think you do it uh, because it's, it's by um, having the global conversation that we also collectively all move in that same direction and get to understandings about how we organize our energy systems, our agricultural systems, and, and so on. Um, and, and more and more, you will see these kinds of plurilateral agreements like the methane one, that sort of the front runners uh, taking a decision, taking a, a leadership role, and then everybody following suit. Um, and, and that also keeps bringing new technologies into the marketplace, uh, bringing prices down and uh, spurring everybody along. Um, we talked about electrification of, of transport and cars. Um, five years ago, no one thought that that even would be an issue that would move at any speed. But now you have a large number of countries and of vehicle producers setting targets for ending combustion engine by 2030 or 2035. And I can see in my own country, We've gone from from zero uh, EVs and hybrids to uh, a third of all cars sold last year were EVs, and more than half were EVs or hybrids. And 
and uh, the the um, charging companies uh, are now doubling, tripling, quadrupling their efforts to get the charging infrastructure in place because consumers are actually ahead of of the charging and uh, industry. And we're also making catch up in terms of ensuring that we have the green energy supply to feed the energy into those cars so that they don't run on German produced coal generated energy. Uh, it's not possible to have this or to finish this conversation without introducing another C word, which is China. Uh, I think it's true that there's no path that excludes dramatic action by China, um, but demand for oil from China has yet to peak. They continue to open new coal plants. President Xi was noticeable by his absence from Glasgow. Uh, China's climate diplomats had a bit of a rough road there. Um, they were behind the curve, dramatically so. At the same time, the irony is that they are a leading producer of solar and other renewable technologies. So they're working on both sides of the balance sheet. Uh, can we get to where we, the world, needs to get to without China behaving fundamentally differently than they have been? Uh, we, we can't get to where we need to be without China stepping up its acts. Uh, that's true. Um, if you look at global emissions, uh, roughly one third now come from the OECD, Europe, US, Australia combined, uh, and Canada and so on. Uh, roughly one third, a little less than one third from China, and roughly one third from the rest of the world. So China, in and by itself, is such a large piece of the of the challenge and of the solution. Um, the Chinese leadership has committed to peaking emissions before 2030, and it seems as if they will start a cold phase out and phase down by 2026. Hopefully, they can advance that date. Uh, that's where all eyes will be upon them. And uh, I think the mechanism introduced in Char in um, Glasgow, where we have to revisit and review and have ministerial level engagement on mitigation and the 1.5 challenge every year, will also put China on the spot every year to come back and tell the world what they have done. And I think that kind of mechanism uh, will make everybody um, more focused on actually delivering um, in that sense, the Chinese in, um, in um, Glasgow in the final round, uh, I think, felt quite isolated. And it wasn't just uh, the U.S. and Europe who were saying, you need to step up your action. But there was a chorus of uh, voices from small island states that are disappearing, from vulnerable countries where the seawater is rising, from countries in Africa and Latin America developing countries uh, who were saying enough is enough. We need to end uh, emissions from coal. You, All the major emitters need to start uh, reducing their emissions. And, and that was a clear, a clear message to China from, you know, the countries they've been working the closest with in the global south. So, But what is it? The yeah, pressure is on. The pressure is on, but is there evidence the Chinese care about that pressure? Pressure is, one th pressure is in the eye of the beholder. And, and, and those who are pushing think they're pushing. Where, why do we think that the Chinese are listening and are actually rethinking their strategies? Well, that's where I think that, that even though China is, um, iso has isolated itself with the pandemic, 
uh, China is still very much a part of, of global value chains and, and global markets. And you can see, you can see consumers uh, all over the, the, the West and the world starting to demand more green products, starting to uh, be much more conscious about the way things are um, produced and, and where they come from. And there's a lot of pressure on China to clean up its act. And um, let me let me quote one piece of evidence for you. Uh, you know that there's a, in, in the shipping world, um, the Danish company Maersk is probably the largest container shipping company around, and uh, they set themselves the target of decarbonizing their their ships, their shipping by 2050, um, as a leader in in um, in the shipping business and um, the demand for green shipping on them from the consumer good producers, the Nikes or Ikeas of the world is so large that they have, uh, they have increased uh, their order of green ships and they have um, advanced the date for being net zero to 2040. And, uh, and I think there are many companies that are experiencing this kind of demand and uh, pushing that down their value chain. That also means that all the products that they that they um, transport that come from the Far East, including from China, um, the producers of those goods are now demanding that they be produced using green energy, clean water, um, you know, sustainable circumstances. And that pressure is definitely on China and on other countries in Asia. I think Indonesia feels the same, Vietnam, uh, Korea, even Japan, uh, all those countries that are factories of the world. I hope that's true. Uh, I, I have to say I see very little evidence in changes in, in how China is actually being run, what it's actually doing. There isn't even much lip service being paid, but we'll see. But Tomas, let me thank you for this conversation uh, and also for your efforts, because I know you have had... I don't know, weeks, months, years of sleepless nights trying to move this transition. And if it weren't for people like you, we would not be where we are, which is maybe not where we need to be, but is a hell of a lot better place than, than would otherwise be the case absent the effort. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Alan. I, I have the honor and pleasure to work for a government in a country that is still fastly dedicated to this cause. And hence it's a uh, it's uh, fairly easy for me to implement what the collective will of my small polity is. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>